Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. It has taken us 22 minutes. It was 21 till Alina had a mental breakdown when we tried to do this the first time. 22 minutes to get to actually hitting record because we were having such fun with our guest. Alina, tell everyone who's here. Ladies and gentlemen, we have had this absolutely fantastic guest on before, but just in case you don't remember who she is, Melissa DeVelvis is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of South Carolina, specialising women and gender studies in the 19th century. But today she's coming to talk to us about something completely different than what she talked about with us last time. And we're going to be talking about Victorian death shit. Melissa, yeah. welcome. Happy spooky season, ladies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Melissa is currently cramming jelly babies, no, jelly beans in her face, and we've been discussing Percy Pig, but the point of us being here is to talk about why the Victorians are so crazily obsessed and weirdly obsessed for us with death. So why is that, Melissa? Oh, goodness. Where to start? Right, this is the <laughs> podcast. Um, so... In in most ways, they get it from their um, their their Puritan predecessors, um, and so they start out with um, at least talking about for uh, the United States of it all. But there's a lot of um, comparisons to be drawn here. Mm-hmm. Essentially, death is first viewed as a very scary thing that you should not want, and you'll probably go to hell, and therefore you need to be very, very good so that you can go to not hell. And so that's where we get uh, the sinners in the hands of an angry god, fire and brimstone, remember all men must die. Mm -hmm. Um, Shakespearean actors standing with the skull, memento mori, these contemplations that, oh, hey, P.S., death is coming, and it's meant to be almost a warning so that you will live a good and virtuous life. Because if not, um, some terrible things can await you in the eternity and afterlife. This starts to get a little bit too um, too sad and a little bit too scary um, for uh, people starting in the 1830s, 1840s, and then moving on to the Victorian period. And so they start to look at death as something that is more an eternal rest than rather eternal suffering in hell if you play your cards wrong. And knowing the Victorians, they therefore make an entire culture out of it, and they also commercialize the heck out of it. So they go from pretty much a slow yet steady turn from death to be feared to death to be just the next the next step, and I'll see you again in heaven. In I actually hell. think, Alex, do you know what? I actually think me and Alex are going to end up both in hell. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All of us. I'm pretty sure. I um I visited the catacombs in Paris and pretty much just posted up next to all of the... Well, it's not my fault. They literally took skulls and made little hearts and art out of the skeletons. And chandeliers out of the spine bones. That creeps me out. Yes, they're what? asking for me yeah. to post up peace signs next to these skeletons. And so um, I, too, might be condemned, uh, unfortunately. It's a bit, I would argue we're already all living in hell with 2020. 
True, true. This is not um this is not a final rest by any means. No. This is not restful. But so but you said that they're like so they're trying to put a positive spin on it, aren't they? Yes. So what is this this crazy concept of a good death? So a good death is the idea that you are on your deathbed at home. So this is before you get the popularization of hospitals. You would rather be um, dying at home with your family. Uh, you are think about the um, the woman wasting away of tuberculosis, and so everyone is gathered by her bed, his or her bed, um, and then. But they also get the chance at the end of their life to repent, to find God. Everyone is praying for them, and they get to say their last rites. It's supposed to be just a gentle passing away through a good death, and then to the final rest or the final sleep. And so, if you've ever seen these deathbed pictures in which there's one sole figure reclining and everyone is just gathered around them. Honestly, depending on how you feel about your family, not a bad way to go. Um, and so everyone is kind of draped over them and it's supposed to just ease their passage into the afterlife. And notably, this is also happening, uh, as I kind of mentioned, with a shift in Christianity in which, uh, for one, with infant mortality and mother mortality rates um, so unhealthy as they are, you're going to lose, as as a woman, especially in this time period, you're expected to lose children in infancy. And mm. so this idea that we'll just see them again in heaven, they are looking down on us, this easing of a peaceful transition into the afterlife, they kind of have to think about it this way to make this death bearable for themselves, that their infant child is watching over them in heaven went peacefully and did not have a painful passage through the fire and brimstone that we um, associate with the early, um, the 1700s. So I do have some sympathy for them with their, with their, their final sleep and their good death and their rest because I don't know, sometimes knowing that people aren't hurting anymore when they're deceased is um, a nice way to cope I think we still do that, though, at the end of the day. I know, I know that I do with uh, people that have passed in my life. I keep thinking to myself, you know, they're living a better life. And I think it's a comfort thing at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I think it's something that's shared both with people who are spiritual and believing that they're living a good afterlife, or even people who aren't spiritual seem to at least think they're at rest. Their suffering is over. This is restfulness. So the idea that death is almost like the good part um, – <laughs> It's yeah. something that 19th century Christians very much believed in, um, at least my area of the United States. So mourning actually becomes popular. I mean, we've seen it all in, in TV with the black dresses and everything else, but what makes it so popular? Oh, boy. So the Victorians love their manners. They truly do. And so there are social codes and etiquettes written in to this Victorian mourning culture. And in the way of the middle class Victorians really wanting to get ahead and they want to show that they're getting ahead in society by adhering to all of these norms, um, mourning becomes part of these customs. And it only becomes even more popular with the death of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband in 1861. Um, if you look up pictures, because podcasting is clearly such a visual medium, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are images. I think the Welcome Library has a good image of the death of Prince Albert in which he is just surrounded by people, women on fainting couches, reclining sadly, of course, but also everyone is surrounding him. He is not dying alone. Um, and Victoria herself partakes in a lot of the um, 
kind of creepy morning culture items that we will get to later. So he'll come back up. But either way, if the queen is doing it, it is going to be vastly more popularized as well. Um, but so it starts specifically with clothing and with visitation. So if you are a woman, um, it is essentially your job if you are of a status that you don't have to work for a living. And so that's how the middle class and, of course, the upper class are showing that, oh, hi, we have enough money and power that I don't have to work in factories or fields or as a seamstress. Um, I'm going to embroider instead of sew. All of these things. Uh, so therefore, they are often leaving calling cards and visiting throughout their day. Mm. However, if you are a widow and your husband has just passed, you cannot leave the house for the first month except for church and business purposes, and you can have no visits or dining away from home for the first six weeks. And for the entirety of deep mourning, which lasted two years, um, there are no weddings or festive parties. Um, yeah. This is with oh, the Scarlet O'Hara and the no dancing thing and going with the wind, isn't it? You see this. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I need to correct myself. Deep mourning is for one year. Okay. Half mourning takes you into the second year. Um, yeah. And so, yes, the social nature of you cannot be too outwardly happy because you are in mourning. And ideally, this can give you a chance to not be expected to go out in public and be sad all the time. You can have an excuse to retreat to your home and mourn in peace. However, the fact that this goes on for two years, it becomes, I think, inevitably house arrest, unless you're Queen Victoria or maybe some version of Miss Havisham running around in her wedding dress. Um, except for if you're Victorian, you're wearing black. You're not wearing a yellow wedding dress like um, our, our lovely Havisham does in Dickensian times. Two years. Mm. Two years. And also, you can't, you have to wear black. You can't wear shiny silk. You have to wear crepe. Oh, it's crepe as well, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Nothing too shiny. Morning jewelry is allowed, but nothing too gaudy. Your Jeez. morning fans, parasols, aprons, walking sticks, all are allowed, but in black. Um, you can. Sometimes we're taking half mourning, which is where you can have some gray, violet, and white. Some of your collars can be replaced and sleeves replaced gradually. And half mourning, that's for uncles, aunts, cousins, and intimate friends as compared to, you know, your spouse. Um, so there's so many Victorian cultural norms and rules and etiquette to measure how long someone is mourning and what connection you had with them. What if you hated your uncle? You still... I'm telling you now, I'm doing the Prince of Wales' letters and diaries in World War One, And uh, his, so his, okay, the Duke of Connaught's wife died. So that is his great aunt in 1917. And the king has everybody on the half morning. And all he does in his letters is bitch and moan about the no parties and the no dancing <laughs> and the no this and the no that. And I didn't like her anyway. Um, and yeah, it, it's an absolute chore and a trial, which it's, it's kind of mean from him. But uh, yeah, it's not exactly appreciated by the younger generation by that point, which is like 1917. I mean, it might be mean, but it's, I see it reflected in a lot of these letters as well. Because then, of course, you get the other spectrum in which people are complaining that your mourning is too performative. If you get an invitation to a funeral, Unless you are dead or cannot go anywhere, you have to go. Like, you have to go and you have to mourn. And so, so much of this becomes so, instead of culture, it becomes a rule. And then, if you're just doing it to adhere to a rule, 
is it going to be viewed as fake by your friends and your peers? Or if you're really diving into the mornings because you're middle class and you want to get ahead in life, are people going to judge you for overdoing it and crying crocodile tears? So it becomes a big mess, but it is a very prominent and long-lasting cultural mess, if I do say so. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. How, so how did the Victorians turn it into a business? So you can probably guess by now that there's the fashion business, of course. Mm -hmm. um, there are morning clothes, um, veils, parasols, um, even um, even outfits for men as well. Although, of course, their morning was drastically shorter because they had to you know, go and be businessmen. Only women were allowed to be in the home for that long. Um, and so you see entire large business ads um, advertising clothing, you also see stationery that is um, bordered in black, and so that's your morning stationery. This is uh, great you when you're a First World War researcher because you, as soon as you see that, you're like, right, I need to find out who died. Someone else died. <laughs> and also, is this the same person who died, and are they just reusing it? Yeah, I know. Or, is that, or did the king just decide to just use the black stuff for the entire war? Or Yeah, Yeah, right? Like, when does it let up if you're in war? <laughs> it doesn't, basically. <laughs> Essentially. And you also get um, a lot of jewelry that it refers to mourning. There's a lot of iconography. So we've moved away from the skull and crossbones and instead to like a weeping willow where people are mourning. Or, of course, there are little angels and things like this. Um, funeral urns and shrouds if you've ever been to um, Highgate, for instance, for your for your British followers or um, a basically a Victorian previously privately owned cemetery in which each family paid for their lot and its maintenance, you see a lot of the same draping shrouds, um, angels, pastoral scenes, all of this iconography is heavily associated with mourning. And so there's the tombstone business, frankly, um, and there's also the coffin business. Um, there are ads in newspapers that have a hearse, and it just says, coffins, coffins, and they're just advertising it, saying the, saying the private part out loud, essentially. It's mad. And then you have an actual railway of death in London as well. There's a necropolis railway. The entrance was just to the side at Waterloo, and it ran to an actual train station at a giant cemetery, um, and it was just a death railway. And you would hire a carriage and sit with the coffin from London to Surrey and mourn, and there would, then there was a backup carriage. and Yeah, it was like a slightly essentially cost the same as a holiday. This is brand new information to me. And we oh, need to talk about this later do. on. There. You need to get in what? On. Yeah, you need to come over and we need to go to Brookwood when all of the COVID shit is done. Um, but yeah, I'll send you a picture of the separate little entrance to Waterloo that was for the dead people. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I should tell the viewer, um, I, I, I laugh and I, I look at, I'm so intrigued with death. I am kind of, you know, removed from it because it is the 1860s. But I do love me a good Victorian cemetery. There's just something so, it's mm -hmm. just, it's really unique. It's a beautiful location. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I was not the only one who loved to lounge in a cemetery by any means. No, I've made a career out of it. And also in Brookwood as well, I would take you to see the two very rich people on Titanic that went in the empty lifeboat and didn't want anyone else to go and sit in it with them. Oh, how rude. I know, I don't. There were 12 people in that life. Well, it vexes me. Good. I think it was 12. Oh. We're, do, we're recording oh, a Titanic show on Wednesday with Brian in South Carolina. We'll we'll get that confirmed. But it's the Duff Gordons, yeah. 
I need to just steal all of your South Carolina friends and make them my friends when this is over, if this is over. Oh, yeah. Well, if you haven't uh, hooked up yet with Carolyn at um, Furman, who does the TB and the death and the fashion, uh, you, you guys are going to be besties. Must. Must. Okay. Railway of death. Um, commodification, business of death. Um, oh, and then also, uh, speaking for the uh, American side of things, this is also when you get the Civil War. And so <laughs> embalming makes the death industry skyrocket even more. So after the war is when we start to see more um, just really just making the time span that you can have with the body longer due to embalming procedures, and they do not um, smell and swell as quickly. See, this is related to Civil War. I, I kind of talk myself in circles. Um, but so that's where you start to see the, the funeral industry, because before that, the the reason why a funeral parlor is named a parlor is because this was the morning activity, the dressing of the dead, the wake, all of that was held in one's home parlor. And so the the reason why we pay so much for cremation and funerals and all that jazz today can be tied back to embalming and the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, apparently. I know it's Alina's turn to ask a question, but I'm going to go with this because we're about to talk about weird stuff. Um, and Victorians mm-hmm. and death and the weirdest request I've ever had to make of an archive uh, was at Windsor Castle where I said pretty please can I see the death photos of Prince Eddie and it was a completely normal request for those tell everyone what a death photo is yes so one of the things that we see happening a lot here is post-mortem photography and this was common enough that no one would blanch at it but it was not so common that there aren't some fakes rolling around that I'm like, no, that's just a sleeping baby deer. Um, I hope you didn't pay too much for that one. Um, but, but so essentially before embalming really took off, but also during after embalming procedures as well, um, you see photographers who travel and with the development of certain cameras uh, that make this a lot faster in the 1850s, 60s, um, you see people paying for photographers to come and take a picture of the deceased. And this is where, in these images, you can really see, again, podcasts are a visual medium, um, this final sleep coming into play. So much so that even I sometimes, if I see an image and I don't have an inscription and I don't know the provenance, cannot tell you if this baby is asleep or awake, unless, of course, they are covered in rosaries and flowers and often they really dress up the deathbed of the recently deceased often child but not always Uh, Um, so the prince eddie death pictures he is barely visible under all the flowers it's very creepy he does look like he's asleep apart from the whole crossed hands thing but the bed the room is absolutely coated in floral arrangements as well and then queen alexandra has written a big spiel down the side of the photo in her impossible handwriting which is like a goodbye to her son as well so this was like a big family thing to have this photo Oh, goodness. There's actually, um, in the Royal Collection Trust, I I pulled up my sources just because I (laughs) I love these pictures so much. Um, When Queen Victoria died in 1901, um, she is also covered in flowers and black and um, a cross. And then also above her head is the picture of Albert dead. Oh, that sounds very like Queen Victoria. I laugh because it's just so macabre. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's... um, 
she, but then this is she the has, woman that still had his room set out like he was going to get up and shave 30 years after he died. So, Oh, exactly. And I believe she also – maybe this is the image or maybe this is staged because she has already passed and they've clearly kind of put flowers around her. But I think she had the post-mortem photo of him because there's also a post-mortem yeah, – post-mortem painting based on the photo. And I think she kept it above or near her bed in her lifetime as well. But they're not total weirdos that invented that, are they? Because we had death masks before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this just made it, um, in the way of advancing technology, it just made it easier and more accessible and honestly cheaper. More people could see a visage of the deceased after they died. And then, of course, people that are famous like Victoria and um, Napoleon III has a postmortem picture that goes around. Um, they, they kind of sell them as keepsakes as well. And so while we are all kind of creeped out by a dead person, um, this is a chance to, this is the last time you will see your loved one. Mm. Wouldn't you want to be able to have that image of them as long as possible? It's just something that's, that's fallen out of cultural oh, use, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's especially, I can be especially sympathetic towards the, the babies um, in that you did not have, have time to take a picture of your child because it was probably still an infant. Mm-hmm. Photography, while more, it can develop more quickly now, it's still often expensive for a lot of families. So for some people, their deceased child or loved one, this might be the only picture they have of them. Mm-hmm. And they know that it's now or never. And so that kind of explains a bit of the popularity as well. Uh, we, we love to cringe, but it's it, it makes more sense when you think about the accessibility to an image of your loved one and keeping a piece of them after they've died. I mean, we've done a full circle, though, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. There's an industry now, I believe, for, for um, preemies or newborn babies or something like that. I know there's there's photography for that because it's the only chance they'll get to see their, their child. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other examples and I'm blanking, but you all might know. Mm. I've got examples for the next one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> yeah, this is odd. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> so the next one we've got is um, hair jewelry. Yes, my my most favorite. Um, <laughs> so hair jewelry is also not new. Um, but again, it's the Victorian commodification. It's when we're starting to get mass production of things. It's when we're starting to see catalogs like Godey's Ladies books and mannerisms that are being circulated. And this is where things really start to kick off. And so, I mean, shoot, I remember writing about John Donne and talking about a lock of his beloved's hair and bearing it with him and therefore bearing a piece of her early. So it's, it's not new. Um, however, you start to see beginning with just locks of hair kept in lockets. And that's something that we in the 21st century are like, okay, all right. So a locket of hair, still kind of weird, but that sounds kind of familiar. Um, and usually the front of the brooch or medallion or locket has a weeping willow or someone mourning. And then they start to boil the hair and make it into jewelry, not just putting a lock of hair into the jewelry, but making the jewelry out of the hair. And so they often boil it, dip it in a mold and cover it uh, sometimes in wax. They had very detailed procedures for how to do this. And so you could have um, hair lace. You could have hair earrings. Um, again, brooches were very, very popular in this time period. Um, and it was something that was very, very intimate. For instance, if you were to give, as a living person, if you were to give a man a lock of your hair, that's practically a marriage agreement because that's we're in a time slut. period. Exactly. Like, unless you're betrothed to this man, you gave him your hair. <laughs> there is nothing more personal. You gave him literally a piece of your body to carry around. And so it was really, really intimate. And it's literally a piece of someone that if they've deceased, if they've died, you can keep it. And after they've died, you have a piece of a person still touching you. And that can either be something that is about the transcendence, like death has no power here, or it can be, hi, why do you have one human hair and two human hair from a dead person? I can go weirder, but I'm going to do it off air. I'm going to tell you about the weirdest thing I've ever heard about a piece of jewellery and what someone who was dying did with it. But anyway, what other kind of weird things can you think of um, that the Victorians that we today would be like, what? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, in addition to hair jewelry, you also have hair wreaths. And this is not just for death, but the idea was that after you do die, um, it's, you know, a piece of you forever. But they'd interweave into really elaborate designs um, members of the family's hair. So, it was like a family tree, but in hair wreaths. And I encourage the listeners to look up Hair Reads Victorian. Um, they're, it's kind of cool if someone's a redhead and someone's a blonde, and so you can mix those colors together. Um, and eventually, this is one of the few things that didn't get completely commodified in the market, um, and people didn't just send it off and buy it from people, because eventually they started to ask after they sent it off to a company to get it made for them, well, who's to say this is still my family's hair? And so that remained something that didn't get, you know, industrialized as we move into the 1900s, the hair jewelry of it all. Um, but this is also the same period where um, because they're so intimate with a dead body, again, there's embalming advancements, but a lot of people are still preparing the body at home. This is where we see a lot of people who still kind of go and look at the 
bodies of their loved ones after they've been buried. This is usually during the 1800s that you've perhaps heard of that. Um, I believe Edwin Stanton uh, would often go and peer upon the visage of his deceased and um, the famous, not famous, well, yeah, the famous George Saunders, his book Lincoln on the Bardo is in, in the Bardo is entirely based upon um, a story that circulated of how Abraham Lincoln would go back to the cemetery and look at his son sleeping in death. And so they were a lot more comfortable looking at dead bodies and not just during the wake, but after mm-hmm. in a way that I'm still a little, depending on the person, afraid to see that person's body for the last time. Um, there's also, and this is getting a bit irreverent, but there's a story of a Charlestonian family. I believe it was one of the Laurens, like Henry and John Laurens, maybe, um, maybe a brother, but maybe one of them. Um, so within the greater Lawrence family in Charleston, um, they wanted to burn their deceased in a kind of very noble bonfire way, but they did not take into account how much fire and how much heat was necessary to cremate. And the body did um, fall off of the funeral pyre and roll down a hill. Um, so that's a little creepy for you guys. Um <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's not like... There goes Granny, rolling down the hill. It's it's both terrifying, and then if you get enough time away from it, a little bit humorous. See, I can laugh because it was from, you know, the the 1700s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Surely someone would have looked up the actual art of cremation before doing it. I mean, I'd just say, if this is one of your loved ones, and you're like, no, I know this is rare, but this is what we're going to do, I'd make sure that I knew the ins and outs of it and the absolute intricacies of how to do it right. I wouldn't just be like, (laughs) I'm just going to build a fire and chuck Granny on it. I would make sure that you would, wouldn't you? I would hope so. You would hope that you'd put some effort into it for the sake of Granny. It kind of reminds me, it shouldn't remind me, but trying to do it today and just sparking a forest fire or something. What with these gender reveal parties starting California fires. But no, yeah, there was a lot of... Everyone kind of gathered to watch it, though, in a way that we would probably think would be um, abhorrent, but they were just so much more comfortable with dead bodies and the handling of dead people and the idea that they are just asleep and at rest. I mean, during the, um, the flu outbreak of 1918, there are photos of children, must be like around the age of 10, gathered around the coffin of their schoolmate, and they're all dressed to the nines and carrying a ton of flowers, and they are standing there in that photo. And I'm just trying to imagine today a Thinking child of that age dying. Death is like now, we obviously we don't see as much of it. And I think it's mm-hmm. just something that they, this is this, is this them processing a way to live with the amount of it they have to live with? I think so. I, I think it definitely is. And it, it, it stems from, again, these ideas of mortality, the idea that, um, well, you know, we don't have germ theory quite yet. And then embalming makes it even more interesting to stare upon these bodies. Um, I believe Cornelia Hancock, so shout out to my, my last podcast appearance, um, there was a, a, a room in which they kept the embalmed bodies of Civil War soldiers who had passed before they were to be placed on the trains and sent off to their final resting places. And she said it was so peaceful in there. And their visages of these dead soldiers were so peaceful and beautiful that she liked to be in there because it made her feel calm. And so in in some ways, while we... Well, we like to say, ooh, weird death stuff. It's 
it's almost just an enviable comfort with the fact that people do die and death exists in a way that and sometimes we 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 send dying people off to hospitals or nursing homes or sometimes they come home for palliative care but it's death is almost more sanitized today or it's at least sent off to third parties in a way I mean they would find it horrific that we do that wouldn't they Probably, and that's the reason why hospitals during the Civil War made people so panicked was because it was it was sanitized, it wasn't home-like, it was foreign to them. Do you know what? I want to throw something else that I didn't get a chance to throw. Going very, very briefly back to the jewellery thing, mm-hmm. we do that in the modern day because we, uh, me and Melissa were talking the other day and I said, you do, know we, do you know we do that now? I found on the internet, don't ask me how I found this on the internet. I don't want to know um, about your internet habits. <laughs> it's a whole different podcast. I found this on the internet where you can take your cremated loved one and turn it into jewellery, like a necklace or a ring or a bracelet or something like that. So it's kind of, again, done a full circle. Ew. <laughs> yeah, I'm not having that. That's creepy. Put granny on it- your wrist. Yeah. Although I've admitted this on another podcast. I do have a, a ring made out of my elephant's hair, but she's not dead. Um, and it's just a memento because obviously I can't be in Thailand all the time. Um, and it doesn't hurt her. So they just clip a couple of hairs off and plait them and coat them in super glue. And it turns it into a super resilient waterproof ring. That's pretty much what they did with Victorian hair jewelry. Mm-hmm. I mean, their version of super glue. Um, but yeah, no, that, that sounds a lot like what they did. And it, again, yeah, taking these locks of hair, it doesn't, doesn't hurt anyone. No. Um, and I mean, I get to carry the moody cow around with me wherever I go, so. <laughs> and people to this day, they keep, they keep the ashes in funeral urns of their loved ones in their households a lot. And yeah, my granddad's in a funeral urn right now. Yeah. And, and some people, especially people, you know, our age or younger are, are, are creeped out by it, but it's a, it's still a common procedure. Let's face it, and there's no one on this podcast that isn't creepy by other people's standards because we all love hanging around in cemeteries, don't we? Agreed. Oh, gosh, so much. And it was, again, this, this greater level of intimacy that, I mean, I love it today. And actually, I was recently socially distanced, I promise, um, had a mask on, or if I was um, kind of alone at certain parts of the cemetery, I would take my mask off but uh, was hanging around at Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta, Georgia uh, this mm-hmm. past weekend, actually. The weather was beautiful, and so many people were actually walking through the cemetery. So I think it's becoming popularized again. Um, it's there, Especially Victorian cemeteries are beautifully planned um, because in the Puritan time period, and so in this, um, this fire and brimstone, uh, death was more – it was a graveyard. It was where you, you put – the graves. It wasn't a resting place to continue to go to. It was a contemplation that death is coming for you. Be careful. Um, whereas with this idea that um, death was to be your final sleep, it instead became a place where the family would pay to um, make sure that it was tidied. They pay pretty nicely for headstones and it, the gardens around Oakland are just simply beautiful and the iconography, the marble work is just truly, truly lovely. And so I love to go there and just sit and have a picnic. And I was not alone because that is what people did in the Victorian period is they would come and sit alongside headstones and the mourners that were maybe visiting a loved one didn't find this irreverent and they didn't have a problem with it in that time period either. And so the idea of a, um, 
a Victorian picnic in the graveyard or cemetery or churchyard was very popular. And there's images. Oh no, I'm blanking. In Highgate, it's it's, it's Egyptian row, I believe. Um, Egyptian row or Egyptian columns. Either way, uh, just a series of regions within Highgate Cemetery in London where uh, people in the Victorian period visited with frequency um, in the way that we do today. Uh, they they also were doing the same thing. I was uh, in Foster Hill Cemetery this weekend, and we were not the only ones in there wandering around, having a look at headstones. And I think as well, all three of us deal with combat. So there's a higher mm-hmm. level of paying your respect to the people that died because they are young people who were kind of killed. They weren't people who died. Um, so there's And they died for a cause. So there's a reason to be there paying your respects to them as well, no matter what side they were on. Um but again, just to wander around, having a look at the monumental art, because we just don't see it nowadays. It's too cost prohibitive. Mm. Um, mm. And also the the artistic nature of it is gone. The way that they did it, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree. I, I just want to throw in, if we go back a couple of thousand years, go back into the Roman period. I mean, it's exactly what they did back then. They made benches alongside the road. Obviously, cemeteries weren't inside the city. They were on the outside. But, you know, people are walking along the road, going into the town, going into the city. They'd have a bench. They'd have a picnic. They'd go visit their loved ones, you know. And, and the iconography is just beautiful. You see these beautiful heads, uh, sorry, heads and all sorts of different types of iconography. Um, uh, God, I'm, I'm, again, losing my language. Uh, various different types of uh, stone masonry. It's incredibly beautiful, and it's pretty similar to what the Victorian... Join us in the evening because we uh, reconvene down the Mary Road now that all the pubs are closing again for what has turned out to be the most hotly contested and epic debate we've done yet, which is... What is the greatest war film of all time? All the regulars are coming and there are several special guests as well. Uh, film buffs, war historians. Woody's going to drop by, so don't miss that. Join us tomorrow when we will be having a little bit of a story session with Owen Griffiths. He's back to more of his folklore with a bit of a creepy slant for Halloween. Just a little bit of a special for you this weekend. And then join us on Monday when Karen Uslin will be here to talk all about music and concentration camps. Don't miss that. Did, and it's pretty similar to what we're kind of getting to now. I think yeah, um, you're looking for the word iconography, aren't you? Yeah, that's yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, but it's true. It is absolutely true. An assist. Yeah, and and that's something you've you sparked something that I forgot to kind of mention is that um, a lot of these cemeteries, until we get publicly planned cemeteries, or there are lots that were purchased by the the city to maintain. Um, the ones that we love the most and seem to be the most beautiful were afforded by families who could, you know, pay for that level of marble work or reserve a plot for their family or have these statues. And so it also is worth noting, especially in the American South, um, is that these cemeteries were also segregated. Um, it was absolutely, uh, they would have considered it abhorrent to be buried in the same destination as a black person. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why in many Victorian cemeteries you'll see there is um, – a black or an enslaved cemetery uh, on the outskirts or periphery, um, often not the best land. Um, and so there is an African-American cemetery uh, for affluent and influential um, black Americans in Atlanta in um, Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta, but off to the side 
Um, there's also a separate portion within the cemetery that was marked as a slave cemetery. So there's there's two different regions. One is which they marked enslaved people and maybe sometimes gave us a little bit of information about them. And then still, even after emancipation, very well off, like Atlanta had a thriving, wealthy black community for quite some time um, and, you know, continue to do so. Uh, but they still had to be off to their own side of the cemetery. And it was also enslaved people, um, if not uh, paid servants and others, that before the funeral parlor and industry came about, they were often the ones that were doing the preparing of the body and the dressing of the body and positioning them for the um, for, for the wake in the funeral parlor, parlor being the house. And so a lot of the, the behind-the-scenes labor of death that made these deceased people look so peaceful and restful was done by the um, lowest paid, if not unpaid, mm-hmm. members of society. I think it's really important, like especially now when you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything, you actually you can go and have an afternoon out in a cemetery without being a complete weirdo. I know that you could go to Anfield Cemetery next to Everton's football ground. It's fantastically interesting. It's got early VC winners, Crimean ones. It's got Titanic people. It's got Jack the Ripper suspect buried there. There's a guy buried sitting up as well because they found him in an extreme state of rigor mortis and couldn't do anything else. Uh, and wow. actually, up most of that cemetery, there's a whole end of it. There's half a million people in there. Um, most of, uh, There's a huge section of graves that are pretty much on underwater for a lot of the year because of the water level as well like under the ground um not it doesn't reach the surface but actually where they are is flooded uh you could go like we said brookwood which we will have to take you to one day now uh has thousands as well as a huge military plot and there's canadians and americans and czech and polish and world war ii uh and then even we have there's a lovely lovely guy down at folkestone has because it's a military garrison has a fantastic cemetery with loads really interesting stuff in it and uh hit up peter anderson on twitter people and get him to do a tour because it's something you can do socially distanced wearing masks uh without breaking any rules and get yourselves out of the house yeah, no, absolutely. And it's really, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which I'm not, um, this is not my area of expertise at all, but cemeteries as a site of public history and mm-hmm. visiting them for historical purposes. And again, speaking of Oakland, because I was there two days ago, um, it's, they have several historic markers and now kind of like those QR codes where you can take audio tours. And I know um, the Paris catacombs have that as well. And so I, While sympathetic to people who perhaps think that this needs to remain a holy place of reverence, I also am really intrigued with the idea of, I don't know, cemetery tourism. Uh, I mean, you can learn so much by reading the headstones. Yeah, yeah, you truly, I I find myself, there was a, a Benjamin F. Perry, who is a very notable South Carolina unionist, uh, during the Civil War, and I found a Ben F. Perry Jr. in Atlanta, and I freaked out, saying, "What are you doing here?" And it was the wrong one. But still, Aww. the fact that I could do that, I could, I could quickly pull up, find a grave or something, and say, "Well, well downtown you? Columbia has a fantastic cemetery with uh, is it? That's where Wade Hampton is, right? The guy whose name is on the letter in Gone with the Wind." Yes, so they've got a they've got a lovely one in uh, Trinity Churchyard, which is a pretty. Ch- gorgeous church in itself and they also have one kind of on the outskirts of the city called um elmwood and yeah, I they know have historic a civil columbia. war cemetery don't they yeah yeah and and uh, historic columbia gives tours of elmwood at night sometimes uh, i think they've paused it with covid but that's also where randolph cemetery is which was the city's um 
Black Cemetery, named after B.F. Randolph, a Reconstruction politician who was assassinated in 1868 and buried there. They're just talking about Foster Hill as well. So you talk about social history. You go in there and there are randomly all these guys from Scottish and Highland regiments who died very early in World War One. And you're like, well, they didn't go and get wounded because their units weren't out there. And what it is, and this will teach you something about cultural history, as I learned yesterday from uh, Charlie's husband, Chris, is that so all of these Highlanders came down because they were plonked and billeted in Bedford at the beginning of World War One, And they had never been exposed to things like diphtheria and a huge swathe of them died. There are two brothers a few weeks apart, these really young guys who died because they were picking up on diseases that that weren't up there, that they had no exposure to. And it was because, and then you start delving into why it happened, it was because they came down in such a hurry, they were billeted in people's spare rooms, didn't necessarily have beds in there, so they were sleeping on floors, so it wasn't very uh, healthy environment for them. So just by going and visiting that cemetery and asking the question about why there's all these Highland cemetery, Highland people buried there before they'd ever had a chance to fight a battle and get wounded, you can learn so much from just having a wander, and it's kind of healthy as well. You're getting your steps in, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And and the, the genealogist nerd in me loves to see some of the family drama there. Like, why isn't his first wife buried with him as well? Or so, like, with these families, especially in the U.S. South, but also, I mean, um, any, any uh, listeners who have royal families would understand as well, like, they, the importance of the name and the nomenclature. So, like, these southern families, even though they had different last names, they all just married into each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's always so interesting to say, okay, well, not only where are they buried, but with whose family are they buried? Are they buried? Because you'd expect, you know, the wife to be buried with the husband, but sometimes the wife is actually buried with her maiden family name. And sometimes that's because that family was stronger and um, more socially powerful and then sometimes uh sometimes i wonder if there was some uh, drama there in which they did not want to be laid to rest aside their husband and so you get a lot of fun juicy family tidbits just by seeing like oh i didn't know these two founding families of the city were intertwined but there is a crypt that has their name on it and so turns out all power was they all just shared the same power just different last names It's crazy. Oh, and if you're in London, Brompton Cemetery next to Chelsea Football Club is filled with famous people, uh, including three World War One generals, and they definitely do tours. A lot of these ones like Highgate and Brompton and Brookwood have societies that are into Mm. the history and that go around looking at the headstones and cataloguing where everybody's buried and picking up the interesting stories and doing tours. Like you say, sometimes they do night tours coming up to Halloween. So, yeah, I think what we've done basically is, while simultaneously revealing to everyone just how nerdy the three of us are um, <laughs> is proof that the Victorians maybe weren't so cracked after all what do you reckon Aline? Well, you wander to... a Warsaw cemetery a lot don't you oh god yes um the military cemetery in Warsaw absolutely phenomenal I mean my great-grandmother's buried there so from, lo and behold that's why I go but that you've got stuff from um the November uprising uh, oh god don't don't ask me about the date 18 18- something so one of my coach mm. friends is going to be like what you don't know the, the date of the november rising um so we're going from the 1800s up until now i mean people are still being buried now but i do want to throw in there if anybody is in poland around on the first of november make sure you do check out the cemeteries because that is our old all souls day and the cemeteries every single cemetery is going to be filled with candlelight and at night is so beautiful watching literally all of these graves just light up 
I want to I want to do that. <laughs> I want to leave America again. I want to go places. <laughs> I'll send I'll send you photos. I'll go around some of the cemeteries and send you photos. Much Don't worry, Melissa. One day the three of us will wander a cemetery with jelly beans. Together. Headstones. I that's, love it. It's, that's my perfect day. I'm getting sad just thinking about it because it hasn't happened yet. We will even push the boat out and bring you some Percy Pig fizz tails. Yes. Love it. They'll be gone in a day, just like they should. Thank you so much for coming on. To just scratch the surface, it's such a massive topic, the Victorians and death, isn't it? What I really like what we've done is we've kind of done it from both sides of the Atlantic, which is really interesting because there's a lot of correlation. And we all just think that the British Victorians were batshit crazy running around in their crepe with their jet jewellery and stuff. But actually, it's not as much more widespread than that. Oh, yeah. And we could, again, scratching the surface. But this was uh, these pictures and these funeral practices shared by... um, Latin America, and we've seen postmortem photography in areas way other than the Western world. But again, not my topic. And also, the three of us could go in circles talking yeah. about cemeteries because <laughs> we are that sad. Oh well, we've enjoyed ourselves anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back. Oh, of course, this is delightful. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.